Hi, and welcome to NASIO Voices, where we talk all things state IT. I'm Amy Glasscock in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm Matt Pincus here in Washington, D.C. On today's episode, we are honored to be joined by Aldona Valicenti, a legend in the world of IT. Aldona served as state CIO in Kentucky from 1997 to 2003. She was NASIO's president from 2000 to 2001 and later chair of the NASIO Corporate Leadership Council. She's currently CIO for the city of Lexington, Kentucky, where she has served in that role since 2013. Aldona has certainly been ever-present at and within NASIO for the past 25 years. I should also note that this past May, NASIO marked 20 years since we changed our name from NASIR to NASIO. Aldona was NASIO's president during that transition, so we're excited to get her thoughts on the name change, which is an important part of NASIO history. Okay, well, let's bring her on. Aldona, welcome to NASIO Voices, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to this opportunity to talk. Me too. Okay, let's start by talking about your fascinating professional background. Can you tell us briefly about your background and especially how you became Kentucky's first CIO back in 1997? Well, I'll tell you, in in some ways, my background has very little to do with what I do today. Uh, My background, my training, my degrees are in chemistry and in mathematics, But I've always gravitated to the technology world, and I worked in those worlds where you needed an advanced degree, primarily either in engineering or in chemistry, and that's my background. But I spent a lot of my time actually learning computer systems. So uh, that became sort of an opportunity for me to look at that as being my future field. I had done 14 positions in 22 years in the petrochemical business, and it was time to do something else. I actually made a list of all the things I wanted to do. I never ran for office, I never jumped out of a plane, and it goes on and on. But there was an opportunity to come to Kentucky, and believe it or not, back in 1997, Kentucky advertised to appoint the first CIO, and they actually advertised in the Wall Street Journal. And I thought, oh, what a great opportunity. I'd like to go back to Kentucky. I'd only been there once for a derby event. And that's how my career started. Wow, that is fascinating. So you've worked in the public sector and the private sector. And I'm curious if you can kind of compare and contrast those experiences in a nutshell. That's kind of a tall order, but... I actually moved from the private sector to the public sector, back to the private sector, and back to the public sector. I'm probably one of the few CIOs that has done that. Let me first tell you what is the same. The same things are the same whether it's public or private if it's a large organization. There's a great deal amount of politics no matter where you are. I think what's different is the speed in which you can move. In the private sector, you can certainly move quicker. You've got less regulation, less oversight, and if you've got the money and the acquiescence to do a project, you go and do it. I think the hoops, there are many more hoops to jump through in the public sector. Okay, so to dive a little bit deeper, you're currently the CIO of Lexington, Kentucky, which is where I live as well. Can you talk about the unique challenges of being a local government CIO compared to a state CIO? Oh, they're so different. And uh, actually, the request to to come to this position, I had a very, very nice conversation with Mayor Gray, and you probably remember Mayor Gray, who is now Secretary of Transportation for the Commonwealth. 
But he told me it was my duty to help my city. I says, Mayor, I'm not looking for a job. <laughs> but he says, you've got to help the city. So that's, and then, you know, we did a few things back and forth, but that's how I came to work. It is very different because you're very close to the citizen. I think you have to think about a local CIO as someone who is in the service business. We pride, we pick up garbage, we pave the roads, we trim the trees, we do an awful lot of that. We answer questions about potholes and lost dogs and things in the park that are not right. That is a continuous, and that's the service business. So you're very close to the citizen. The citizen tap you on the shoulder when you're standing in the grocery line. In fact, they used to do that to me all the time and say, when are we getting high-speed broadband? (laughs) I says, well, not this month. (laughs) And it goes on and on. But at the state level, you don't have quite the same things. Every once in a while, you get a citizen interaction, but certainly not on a daily or weekly basis like you do in the city. And that's the big difference. On that same chain of thought, would you say that, you know, in your current role, you're much more, you know, customer focused than you were when you were state CIO? Oh, absolutely. I think our customer focus at the state level was more to the to the elected officials, maybe, and Mm. to the groups that they represented. But at the local level, your customer service has has to be to the citizens. So let me give you an example. We have what is known as LexCall. LexCall is the 311 center. We don't even have a switchboard. Any citizen can call LexCall, and they'll connect you with anybody in the directory who works for the city. And that's the nice part. You only need one number. You can call that whether you want to report an accident, a pothole, an escaped animal, whatever it is that you want to report. And we now have actually implemented a very sophisticated 311 system, which is tied to our GIS. So we know exactly, let's say, I'll give you an example. Let's say there are two separate incidents in a park. We now have two different GIS locations in the same park if two different people call. So that's the kind of customer service now that is expected. That's great to hear. uh, And thanks for those examples. So we're going to travel a little bit back in time. From 2000 to 2001, uh, you served as NASIO's president and led the association through many changes and innovations, including changing the association name from NASIR to NASIO. Tell us about your role in the name change as president at the time, the rationale behind the change, and what prompted it. Multifaceted question for you, Aldona. Well, you know, and it is going back in history. Gosh, I wish I could go back in age <laughs> to that time. <laughs> but the point is, is that was that was sort of the time when the internet was really kind of growing up. By the way, the private sector had always used the internet by that time already, not to the degree it is today. Governments mm-hmm. were just getting into that. But I think what was very clear to me, and I joined the NAS, at that time it was called NASIRE, N-A-S-I-R-E. And I had to actually practice how to say that and what it stood for. It stood (laughs) for the National Association of State Information Resource Executives. I had already been elected a director of NASIR. And I, in discussion with the executive committee, I says, look, when I do an interview, by the time I explain what NASIR means, the interview is over. (laughs) And And at that time, the same thing was sort of happening in the private sector. CIOs became a common title. They reported much higher at an organizational level. 
For instance, I came out of the private sector, so we had multiple CIOs. I was the CIO of a division of the chemical company. And, and so I think that that was a natural evolution. But we still had a lot of members who remember with fondness Nassar and frankly didn't want to change. But we got the executive committee on board. We managed to change the name, picked a new logo, and it was also very clear that we had to have a voice at the table in Washington where the laws were made, where the funds were distributed, etc. Because during those years, we found out that a lot of things were asked of the states to be done, yet no money was directed to the states to actually do it. Nor did they understand that in most cases, the implementers were the states, the CIOs, and their staffs. And there's a couple good examples. HIPAA is one of them. And at some point, if there's time, we can, we can delve into that. I wanted some compatibility with what was going on with the private sector. And, you know, as the private sector goes, that will be expected of government. So that drove that change. And I'm very proud of that. And were you met with a lot of resistance in, in proposing the name We change? met with some resistance. We met with some resistance. And it was the folks that have come up, what I call it, through the traditional uh, civil service, people who had managed the data center and now became the head of all technology for their state. So they, they felt very fondly. And, you know, this was their history. And I was changing the history. And we actually did have a vote. We had a vote of, of the membership during, I think it was one of the mid-year, early mid-year meetings. And the membership voted to change the name because, like I said, it became impractical to keep that name and keep explaining what it meant when information resource executives did not exist anywhere in the private sector anymore, nor was that a recognized position. Right. Just to go back real quickly, as you know, as NASIO's Director of Government Affairs, I have heard many stories from, from Doug about how influential you were in advocating for NASIO to have a, a representative or at least some sort of presence here in DC. Not to be too self-serving, but uh, thank you. Um, and, and why was that? <laughs> why, why was that so important to you? Well, it was important to me because if you're going to get funding from the federal government to do some of the things that the states really needed to do, there needed to be an understanding at the elected official level in Washington what that meant and what technology would mean to the progress that's going to be made in the states. And so we, we didn't have a lot of money at those times. By then, I had basically served my year as president, and I headed up at that time what was known as the Partnership Committee, which was really looking on how to leverage the supporters, the contributors, the people who became our sponsors over the years into a more formal role. And at the same time, to try to figure out how do we get ourselves some presence in Washington that can get us into the door of various congressional offices to explain what technology was happening in their states or in their whatever the jurisdiction was where technology needed to have a foothold and to make some progress. And we believe that even on a part-time basis, by the way, we put out a little sort of, uh, let me call it an RFP, a mini RFP. Mm-hmm. You can't imagine how many people came to the table and were willing to work for a lot less than any big company would pay them. But I think as they wanted to learn what is that IT game, what is that information game, 
we managed to get somebody on board, at least part-time. I spent a lot of time with those folks. They got us into many, many offices, and we started to explain what IT meant to the states. And that actually was also the beginning of the fly-in that we do. Um, I did some of the first fly-ins. I did nine meetings one day with congressional (laughs) staffers. Wow. To the point where I thought, my gosh, I'm not even, I don't know if I'm coherent anymore. You're on autopilot. (laughs) (laughs) You're, You're on autopilot. Well, certainly appreciate all that work because, as you mentioned, you know, that education and stakeholder engagement is so important to the core of, of what NASIO is today. You know, and I think that also at the same time, we recognize that we have to formalize how the private sector is going to interface with NASIO because it was very clear that, first of all, you know, I've played all roles. I've been a CIO. I've done, I've done every position in the organization. Um, I went over to the private sector. I brought Nassio money <laughs> as a sponsor. <laughs> so I've played all roles. And I think that I also was able then to recognize how do we formalize that role of the sponsor. So it's not just a, quote, dog and pony show about the products, but it's really how do we work together to bring us better solutions in the long term besides the money. Great insight. So... I know this is a little bit of an open-ended question, but you know, what was the association like when it was Nassire? I mean, you mentioned you know, sort of lack of formalization with with corporate members, and in, in your mind, sort of like what are the top like one or two things of how the association has changed in you know since two thousand one. Well, you know, I think that part of it was a natural progression. You know, if you remember what I just said, is that the traditional head of technology in each of the states came up sort of through the formal technology ranks. So consequently, it was important to understand the technology. Am I going to buy product A over product B and which is going to be better? But it was also very clear that as the technology, not of lesser importance, but of equal importance of being able to market, to present the state, to look for solutions, that role evolved and is evolving, as you know, today, you know, with many of the publications that NASIO has, is the role of the CIO will continue to evolve. Mm-hmm. I've, evol- I've evolved that at the state, and I'm doing it now at the city level. It will be a continuous evolution of the responsibilities. In fact, in my city, if it smacks of anything IT, give it to Aldona. At one, <laughs> at one point, I handled all the phone calls on drones. <laughs> <laughs> So it will keep evolving. But I think that also what, what is the interesting part is that the CIO has different kinds of characteristics. They're comfortable with the press. They can talk to the heads of corporations. They can do the sponsorship. They can explain the technology to elected officials. And I'll tell you, in today's environment, there's nothing more important than that based on what we went through this last year with the pandemic. So I'd like to hear a little bit about, you know, NASIO has long been a proponent and champion of women in technology, and lately we've been putting even a greater focus on it. But many current female CIOs and IT leaders have told us that they believe you paved the way for many others. Do you think that you've had to overcome any unique challenges in your career because of gender? And also, how can we encourage more girls and young women to pursue IT or cybersecurity as a career path? Well, first of all, I believe that IT is a wonderful, wonderful discipline for women, mainly because 
it's not necessarily location-based. It is not necessarily based to one industry or one sector. You can move easily back and forth, and I think I've demonstrated that several times. But I actually started my career in the private sector, and I started it in one of the toughest environments for women, and that's the petrochemical business. Until yeah. I really came to work for the state, I, I think I only had one opportunity where I had a woman report to me. Only men reported to me. You had to learn how to manage a different environment. Let me say it that way. Where you were able to listen, you were able to understand, you learned a lot. But I think that it also gave me the confidence then to pursue it at the public sector. I tend to gravitate and still gravitate to things I don't know because I want to learn. So I had never worked for government. And one of the things I had written down in this list of to-dos was to work for government at some point. But let me just inject one other fact. I'm an immigrant. I come from an immigrant family. English is my third language. And one of the values that we were taught when I was growing up, that if you were successful, you had to give back. So my opportunity to give back was to go to work for Kentucky. My husband said, oh, it's my turn to move. I'll gladly move to Kentucky. <laughs> but why are we doing it for that much less? <laughs> <laughs> So the point is, you have to make some sacrifices. The sacrifices may be pay, the sacrifices may be an opportunity to travel more extensively or whatever. But the point is, and I think in some ways, the conditions that women are, who are working right now, that may be holding them back. But I'll tell you, even if they can do it for a short period of time, I always tell people, you can put two or three or four more bullet points on your resume and you will be successful. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. Well, Aldona, we've come to the end of our conversation about work things, but before we let you go, we'd like to ask you some non-work questions in a segment we call The Lightning Round. Okay. Question one, what is your favorite NASIO conference or conference city that you've attended? I'll tell you, I think my favorite city is San Diego. Mm-hmm. Because it's beautiful, the climate is different, and it's not someplace where you necessarily would go unless you maybe had family there. And so I found that San Diego always lifted my spirits. And I, I'll give you a second city. I love Baltimore because I did all the receptions at the aquarium, which I love. Interesting answers. We do get San Diego a lot when we ask that question. Oh, yeah. Everyone says San Diego, but I do love that Baltimore aquarium. It's great. I do, too. But you're right. It doesn't seem like San Diego is sort of a normal vacation spot or anything for people, but it's a great place to go. It is. But, you know, if you're there as a family, it's expensive. But if you have relatives yeah. or whatnot, then that becomes more flexible. My son-in-law actually grew up in the San Diego area. And since then, he's moved. Of course, my family lives in Texas now. So Texas may have to become my favorite. Yes, absolutely. So on that note, what is your favorite place to take a vacation? And I'll give you two answers. If I want to relax, I go to the Barrier Islands Longboat Key off of Sarasota in the Gulf. And I actually have a place there, which makes it easy. That's great. But if I want to do a travel, I love to travel. I've managed to travel all over the world, and I still have a couple destinations I'd love to do. I have never been to Australia or New Zealand, and I want to do Iceland. Oh, yeah. I would love to go to Iceland as well. Third and final question. 
can you share any silver linings you experienced or insights you gained over the last 16 months? Well, I'll tell you, I think the last 16 months have taught us an awful lot. First of all, it taught us that if we need to move fast, yes, we can. And then it also taught us that not all government employees need to be in one building at a desk or in an office. We can do a lot of that work remotely. And that has been a great learning for Lexington because, you know, we've been talking about building a new government center for about 10 years. And I think the realization is going to come if that ever happens, not everybody needs to be in one building. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you also we've learned is that we need a lot of workers that are still on the ground, as I call it. We've not learned how to pick up garbage remotely <laughs> or to do public safety remotely. I have staff in the who manage the technology in the jail, which is highly technical. They still need to be there. But I'll tell you also what I've learned and the things that maybe we did not anticipate is that this last 16 months have taught citizens that they want a greater voice in government, especially in local government. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And those have been great learnings. Definitely true. And, and certainly from a digital government perspective, we have a long way to go. Yes, we do. You know, we run the legislative process primarily for the elected officials, and we sometimes forget that when we ask for citizen input, it may be at a point that is too late or too far down the road. And I think that that is something that we learned over the last 16 months. For sure. And I mean, we keep hearing time again, citizens want an Amazon like experience when they interact with their state or their Absolutely. local government. It's just, we need to keep working on that every single day. Yes. Well, Aldona, thank you so much for joining us today. It has really, truly been a pleasure to talk with you. We appreciate your time and hope to see you soon, maybe in Seattle. In oh, I'd love to come to Seattle. I'd love to come to Seattle. In fact, I'm planning on it. Excellent. So anyway, I appreciate the time that you spent with me and it was a lot of fun. Thanks, Thank Aldona. you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to Nasio Voices. Just as a reminder, we will be in beautiful Seattle for our annual conference from October 10th through 13th. Registration opens on August 11th at noon Eastern. I can't wait. I can't believe we're going to see people in person, so we hope to see you all there. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.